Disney Channel Halloween movies are always like shockingly good. Like, oh my god, uh, Hocus Pocus. No um, one asked. No one that asked. Was a Hocus Disney Pocus. Channel original. Yeah. No one asked Hocus Pocus to go so hard. I did not. I've never seen Hocus Pocus. What, Steph? Oh my God, my witchy heart is broken. Welcome to Behind the Yellow Boxes, your one-stop comics history podcast. I'm Steph, your co-host and friendly neighborhood archivist. And I'm Brooke, your not-so-friendly, self-declared comics expert. We're two comic nerds with a lot of opinions, and we think it's important to know your history if we want to understand why comics are the way they are. We've spent some time discussing the rise and fall of non-superhero comics early in the history of the medium with our episode on The Seduction of the Innocent. Comics were a much more popular medium for all age demographics at the turn of the 1950s, with superhero comics being one of the least popular genres with a mostly child-oriented audience. Before Wordham took a sledgehammer to the industry, the biggest sellers in comics were romance, true crime, and of course, horror. While these genres mostly got crushed by the Comics Code Authority, there has been a, some nascent attempts to bring them back into prominence and capture audience outside of superhero fans over the years. A lot of these have even been pushed by the big two themselves, DC and Marvel. The truth is, comics have found themselves in something of a spiral for the past four decades. The direct market in feeding into an aging but self-contained group of comic buyers has been the comic medium saving grace since the 1980s. But the more they cater to these markets to the exclusion of all others, the less new fans they acquire to buy more comics. And the more they attempt to bridge out and expand their markets, the more that core audience who has been catered to exclusively for several decades now gives in backlash, which threatens their guaranteed core profit. By the late 1990s and early 2000s came around, there was a burst in comics already highly insular bubble. One we'll definitely dedicate an episode to. And it seems as though the only option comics had was to stick with a sinking ship. Of course, that's only how things seemed at the time. There was a way out of this cycle, but it wouldn't come from the big two or from the superhero genre. In the highly festive month of October 2003, Image Comics took a huge gamble and released a new comic series by a mostly untested creative team of Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore. This series was, of course, The Walking Dead. Okay, quick admission up front, I don't watch zombie movies. I know virtually nothing about zombie media. I came into the, reading this with only the barest idea of both The Walking Dead specifically or even zombie, zombie franchises and tropes as a whole. Which was pretty hilarious for me while you were reading it. But seriously, why no zombies? I'm more of a reader than a watcher, I guess. And zombies are a pretty movie-specific genre, unless we're talking into things about things like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which I just never got around to reading. Too many other things. Plus, we keep forgetting to do that Day of the Dead marathon you've been proposing for years now. Your movie illiteracy hurts me, Steph. It really does. Listen, sometimes you just forget to watch classics and imported movies and so you don't watch lord of the rings until age 23 it happens okay i read book i read the lord of the rings books my nerd my nerd cred is perfectly intact we've gotten really off track just a little but anyways to call the walking dead a phenomenon is actually selling it unbelievably short but that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves let's take it back to the beginning 
We begin our tale in the midst of a violent shootout between two Georgia police officers and an escaped prisoner on the highway. The deputy sheriff, Rick Grimes, is shot during the altercation and blacks out, the comic fading out with his unconsciousness. And when Rick wakes up a month later to a desolated and abandoned hospital, we are left with as many questions and concerns as Rick himself. The comic's black and white interiors create a haunting atmosphere as we follow Rick through the hospital in search of answers and, increasingly, other people. Rick does not find other people in the hospital, not living people in any case, and soon finds himself in an unexpected life-or-death conflict with a group of ravenous zombies. He barely has time to react, but soon escapes the hospital and begins making his way through the vastly changed world he finds himself in. The comic takes its time really immersing readers in Rick's point of view, and through the emotional upheaval he experiences as he takes in each new and horrifying change to his once familiar city and neighborhood. At one point, his journey home, he comes across a zombie which has decayed to almost only bones. The sight of this jarring and indescribable tragedy causes Rick, a man we've seen shot in a high stakes pursuit already, to break down crying. Rick makes it to his home at last, only he finds no quick comforts. His family is nowhere to be found. What is to be found is the broad end of the shovel and another bout of unconsciousness for Rick, thanks to the new residents, a very much loving father and son team. When Rick wakes, he, and by extension, we as the readers are introduced to the fact that there are other survivors in the world, not just Morgan and Dwayne Jones, the survivors living in his house, but others out there to be found as well. Among them, hopefully, Rick's family. Okay, I, again, know nothing about zombie media. His family's absolutely out there. Rick also gets a short explanation of the situation he woke up to, how the outbreak began, the basics on how being bit by the undead turns you into one, and how the entire world is seemingly lost to the plight. Not a long, a lot of time is spent worrying about the more intricate details of how and why this apocalyptic scenario took hold. And to be fair, in universe, none of the characters found in the first volume would have much reason to know or to care about it more than their immediate survival. Determined to become reunited with his family, or to at least learn what happened to them, Rick sets off to Atlanta. There he meets a lot of trouble in the form of swarms of walkers and loses the horse he rode in on. By far the most devastating loss in the comic. Rick's blazingly stupid attempt to enter the most densely populated space in all of Georgia has a surprisingly positive outcome, though, as he's quickly found and saved by a scrappy supply runner named Glenn, who rightly admonishes Rick for making a bunch of noise and stirring up a mob of the so-called walkers. Glenn is a member of a small encampment of survivors who are living outside of Atlanta. He takes Rick back with him, and when he does so, incidentally reunites Rick with his wife, Lori, and son, Carl. You know, that was quicker than I expected. It's true. The Walking Dead moves at a breakneck pace for the first volumes, and especially in this very first volume. It's a quick read, but while reading it, the speed honestly isn't that noticeable. There's a lot of breathing room and intrigue for readers with each step, and you have time to get really acquainted with how life has changed for the survivors and what kinds of people we are left with in this world. 
While there is a lot for Rick to catch up on, including the exact arrangements for how his wife and son have been living with his police partner, Shane, for all of this time, there's also a surprising amount of time spent with other members of the encampment. We learn about characters such as Dale, Amy, and Andrea, who have a non-explicit polyamorous arrangement for living space that causes pearl-crutching Donna and Alan. We get to see a little bit about the dynamics of motherhood in this difficult time through Lori, Donna, and the single mother, Carol. There is a lot of contemplative time spent with these survivors and their struggles. There's never too much downtime, however, as the tensions continue to rise. The undead are a constant and growing threat, and their supplies and living conditions only worsen the longer they wait for someone else to come and save them. But the real struggles come from within, and the unaddressed conflicts between the people. After all, humans are the real monsters. So some horror jar- jargon has slipped in after all these years. Pure cultural osmosis, I assure you. The true climax in the first volume comes not from the onslaught of walkers, though those do come and take their toll on the small group of Atlanta survivors, but from an ultimate conflict between Rick and his former partner, Shane. Shane, obsessed with Lori and the life he thought he had built for himself and Rick's family, has a psychotic break and decides to kill Rick, despite their years of friendship and trust. Rick pleads with his friend, attempting to reach out to a semblance of humanity in Shane. Of course, in an apocalypse, humanity is in very short supply. Before Shane murders Rick, however, Rick is saved by his son, Carl. At only nine years old, Carl shoots Shane in order to save his father's life. Father and son embrace, and Carl declares killing Shane wasn't like killing the dead ones. And Rick ends the volume with the haunting declaration, it never should be, son. It never should be. So I feel that before we go on about anything else, we need to answer the most important question at all. And what's that? Why do they call the zombies walkers? Ah, uh, yes. The eternal walking dead question. According to creator Robert Kirkman, the universe of The Walking Dead takes place in a reality where the zombie horror craze never took hold. Specifically, Kirkman has said that the world never had George Romero's famed zombie flicks, Night of the Living Dead or Day of the Dead. They never happened, so the vocabulary for zombie and undead aren't as popularized before the apocalypse takes hold. That's honestly a very crafty way of getting around referencing zombie media throughout the comic. It's harder to constantly compare the comics to famous zombie media when the word zombie isn't constantly bringing up those thoughts, which I suppose was Kirkman's goal. Not that Kirkman needed to worry all that much about being compared to other zombie media for long. Zombies are an interesting cultural phenomenon. They have their historical roots in Haitian voodoo religious practices. A zombie was someone who had died and had been buried, only to be resurrected for malicious purposes and enslaved by someone. Scholars often write that for many Haitians, zombification was the concept of enslavement following someone even after death. Although pop culture has tried to leave behind the colonial roots of zombification and twisted it instead to fears about mass media, capitalism, or disease, it is important to note that the roots of the genre as a whole still have those colonial undertones. For example, in Walking Dead, we see no Black characters at all, despite the fact that it takes place in Atlanta. Zombies soon entered the pop culture, however, particularly cinematic culture. In 1932, the movie White Zombie tells the story of a plantation owner who, wanting a woman who loves someone else, has her killed and zombified in order to be with her. 
in an act that is directly paralleled with the plantation workers who he supervises. But the codifier of zombies for the American audience is, of course, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Romero's series of zombie films began horrifying audiences in 1968 and continued to fester in the American consciousness through subsequent films like Dawn of the Dead in 1978 and Day of the Dead in 1985. These films were hugely successful, not just for horror films, which have often been treated as downstream of the more allotted Hollywood fare, but as box office smashes overall. The modern understanding of zombies and their power as an allegory is largely owed to Romero. What works so well about Romero's films compared to a lot of copycats that would attempt to ride their hype is a very purposeful commentary that Romero has in his films. From the beginning, Night of the Living Dead quickly becomes a parable about race relations, while Day of the Dead speaks to the harm of consumerism. And in all of these films, the true conflicts rests not in the mortal threat of the undead, but in the selfishness and bigotry survivors face from other living survivors. That's a lesson that The Walking Dead certainly takes to heart. As horrifying and impactful as it is to see characters we come to love and appreciate die at the hands of this growing zombie, I'm sorry, walker threat, the greatest dangers distinctly come from the discord sowed by characters like Donna, or from the toxicity and selfishness of Shane. I think this is where Robert Kirkman's intelligence as a writer and world builder really come through the clearest. Just like his other hit series, Invincible, The Walking Dead makes no secret what influences aided in the development of Kirkman's vision. But unlike a lot of modern writers, Kirkman clearly wants to show that his stories can stand on their own, outside of their homage. Hence why there are the very purposeful decision to build The Walking Dead's world as one where those Romero films don't exist. I think the sacrifice of cheap one-liners and jokes alluding to those franchises worked out big time for Kirkman. And honestly, it made it a lot more accessible to someone like me who has no background in the genre. Horror is mostly dead in comics, pun not intended. And even attempts over the years to fully revitalize it by DC and Marvel by bringing in big name talents like Stephen King and R.L. Stein really never did more than make small blips in the industry. But with The Walking Dead, image comics made a way like bandits. A simple black and white comic with almost no marketing push to speak of outsold every comic it was in competition with. People were mesmerized by the storytelling, the maturity in the world building, and the surprising attachment they felt to an emotionally vulnerable and complex character like Rick. And it's not just from comics fans. The Walking Dead brought in more non-comic readers to their local comic stores than had been seen in years, arguably since Death of Superman in the 90s. People, especially adults who had not read comic books since they were children, were coming back to the stores seeking out this story. I know that was the case with my own family. While I've always been a comic fan raised by comic fans, not everyone I grew up with or even within my own family were the biggest superhero fanatics. My younger sister and our childhood friend became incredibly engaged with the world of The Walking Dead, actually going with me to the stores each month in order to keep track of Rick and the other survivors. The Walking Dead became a phenomenon outside of regular zombie fare as well launching successful and sometimes critically successful spin-offs in the forms of dozens of video games, motion comic series, and a television show that is continuing to this day, more or less. 
What kept fans returning to the comics specifically is the high quality of writing and art that was maintained throughout 193 issues. All of the issues were written by Kirkman, and most of them were drawn by the second artistic collaborator, Charlie Adlard. Uh, they were shocking, compelling, and made with lots of heart. No one was ever wearing protagonist armor fully, and no situ situation was fully safe. Every arc held new surprises. The biggest surprise being that at issue 193 in 2019, without any prior warning, fans learned that the series was concluding. Kirkman had said before that he could have made The Walking Dead go on for nearly 300 issues, but in 2019, he decided to end the series in fear of dropping its quality or having a run past its course. That's not a very common decision to make in comics, especially when something is still considered financially successful, which only adds more to the mystique and fondness people can carry for The Walking Dead as a whole. Who could have expected a series based on Resurrected Dead to lead the way for a noble and timely end? Not fans of the TV show, that's for certain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know much about the TV show. I just mostly remember people getting mad when... I think it was Glenn, actually, who died. I'm still mad. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was like a whole thing where like an actress from the 100 ended up going off to one of the spinoff shows. And that was like a super controversial thing because of, I think it was the lesbian who got shot, who like moved over there. And everyone's like, mm -hmm. was all, that, that's why she got killed because she went over to the zombie show. All right. Moving on to our comic wrecks. Um, as mentioned, I don't do zombie. I also don't do much horror. So finding a proper classic wreck on that topic was kind of a difficult one for me. No one ever said we had to be on topic. Yes, but theme, and we've been doing it since we started recording. I'm not going to be the one to break it. <laughs> Anyways, so one of the themes we touched upon briefly here in the historical aspect was the use of zombification as a way to remove consent, which brought me, of course, to one of the most genuinely skin-crawling supervillains in comics. The Purple Man, better known to fans of Netflix and the MCU as Kilgrave. A lot of people will be familiar with the character of Jessica Jones from her Netflix TV show, but the comic it's based on, Alias, also deals with those themes, but in different ways. This 28-issue run from Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gatos tells the story of fallen superhero Jewel, aka Jessica Jones, in her life as a private detective. Although being 20 years old, meaning not all of the elements have necessarily aged well, there's still something genuine and sympathetic to the trauma that Jessica has gone through. And it treats both her healing and her mistakes with a genuine realness that I found, even when I first read it, to be very poignant. Also, the ending of that comic has lived in my head rent-free for over a decade. So there's that. For a modern recommendation this week, there really isn't any collection of horror comics that I can recommend more than the works of mangaka Junji Ito. But one of his most recent short form comics has left me with my skin crawling and nearly unable to sit on unfamiliar furniture. That is the short comic, The Human Chair. Junji Ito is a positively masterful storyteller and artist with his every pen stroke being precise and agonized over for hours at a time. The layout of his panels being worthy of an entire deep dive as an example of sequential art. But I have to give 
the heaviest of content warnings with any of Ito's works. His beautiful art is used to lull readers into a sense of calm and amplify the horrors, and in this story's case, violence that the characters are forced to undergo. There is psychological horror, body horror, death, gaslighting, all the hallmarks of a terrifying time brilliantly packaged together in a short story format that would give Edgar Allan Poe the chills. Yep, as always, when we recommend comics, really do check for trigger warnings and content warnings wherever you can find them. Jessica Jones also contains some pretty heavy themes about sexual assault. Uh, So yeah, always double check them. We'll try to give warnings when we can, but sometimes we forget because we're human. Absolutely. Well, that about does it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave a review or a rating. That really helps us. And tell a friend to spread the word. If you've got an episode suggestion, want to share your zombie survival plan, or just really want to get involved more, you can tweet us at yellowboxespod or email us at yellowboxespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Kevin MacLeod for the music that serves as our intro and outro, Feeling Good. Thanks for listening. Your I'm, film snob was my film my, my film snob was coming in because I was in high school so I was like I was like actually I prefer to watch movies in black and white this year so I'm going to be ignoring the Disney Channel originals